At the end of the 1950s, two Škoda Coupés based on the 1100 OHC Roadster began taking part in Czech road races. While they did enjoy some success in local races, their racing career didn't last long. The 1960s saw a new category of racing cars and the OHC Coupé went into retirement. Enthusiasts from Škoda Česana bought the two cars, but in the end, both were written off in crashes. One of them was so burnt that its unique all-aluminium body was destroyed. Nevertheless, today's Simply Clever podcast is all about the wonderful coupé which was nicknamed the Czech E-Type. This is because a few years ago workers at Škoda Museum joined forces with the Škoda Auto Prototype Construction Center to revive this burnt-out coupé using original plants, modern technology and, above all, the enormous enthusiasm and determination of everyone involved. The original OHC was also a prototype. The guys at Chesana continued the traditional craft of their predecessors while also using their experiences of developing new Škoda models to recreate the vehicle's aluminium body. The new coupé blends 1960s racing technology with the latest approach still used in the car industry today. This car is a racing circuit special built at the turn of the 1950s and 60s, and it was designed for racing on the circuits of former Czechoslovakia. It followed on from a series of 22 Skoda 1100s, OHCs, that had a fiberglass open body. This coupé, however, had an aluminum body, and two copies were made. This body is entirely aluminum, including all partitions and reinforcements. And so the only things made of plastic are these petrol pump switches, indicators and the steering wheel. The designers managed to achieve an almost 50-50 weight distribution with the front-wheel drive unit transmission and transfer case in the back. Brakes are drum brakes, but right at the transmission case and transfer case unit so the unsprung masses aren't that large, and the suspension comes from this. The car's ground clearance was controlled pretty accurately, and this was a top-quality car for its time. I remember as a kid, we'd go and watch the races at Mladiboleslav, or the Čista circuit where Jarda Bobek, Fošek and Hozak raced, and they put these cars through their paces. Jarda Bobek, Václav Bobek, starší, Fousek, Hozák, Widner a tito velikáni prostě s těmito auty jezdili. These 1100 OHC factory vehicles raced at the very top of the national championships, but because of the turbulent times, they did not travel abroad much. The OHC only competed abroad twice, once in Budapest, Hungary, and again in what was then Leningrad. Otherwise, they faced little domestic competition. In races with 12 vehicles, only one or two could actually compete with them. The rest were only there to fill up the field. These Škoda OHC cars were produced at the peak, or almost the end of the era of the two-seater sports cars. And they stopped uh, racing in the late 1950s. This category then began to fade away, and from 1964, 
it was no longer an official category. That's when racing shifted to monoposto racing. Formula 3 was established, giving new life to racing. And these two copies were left parked somewhere in Chisana. <laughs> so both open cars and both coupés were left by the wayside in Chisana. And it was decided that one open car would be given to the promotions department, the second open car, and both coupés were sold to private buyers. And one of those was your dad. One was my dad, and the second coupé was bought by Hanush Hrabanek, while the other open vehicle was bought by a guy in Prague, who even emigrated with it in 1968. He drove it all the way to England, where the car changed ownership several times. Today, it's owned by Škoda. Dušan Velepny and I used to work at the testing center. I was a car mechanic, and he was the test engineer for this vehicle, including these two laminate pieces. Nobody was doing anything with it, and we were young, so we thought for fun we could ask the company to sell it to us. Either they'd reject the idea or agree. And since I was racing competitively at the time, and doing quite well, I think, and Dushan Velebny was a good engineer. So the company signed it over, and we purchased it. Compared to today's car, the OHC is out of this world in terms of height. It comes up to an adult's waist and even Class A cars like the Fabia seems huge in comparison. But the coupé really stood out on Czechoslovak roads even in its time. It's true that everyone stared at the car. But then again, the roads weren't as busy. And it wasn't something you drive slowly. In fact, there was no speed limits. So people didn't have much time to catch sight of it. I did make a lock for it here, but the only real security feature was the fact that I always removed the steering wheel and took it with me when I left the car. If Dušan Velebny and Hanuš Hrabanek hadn't worked out at Česana and therefore had no experience of similar cars, they probably wouldn't have bought the OHCs. These days Hanuš Hrabanek says that only a couple of crazy young guys like Dušan Velebny and he could have done it. People were hardly queuing up to buy it because you couldn't drive it in the winter, right? The wind would blow through every hole. The frame made a noisy racket the whole time. It was a racing car, so after every race, you'd have to check it and adjust it, etc. Ultimately, the fact that everyday life with a racing car wasn't easy actually saved this specific coupé. The only thing that spoiled the fun was the high fuel consumption, which was 20 to 25 liters for every 100 kilometers, which eventually led me to return to the 1100 engine. 
I got a 50 horsepower engine from a Škoda Felicia in return. I got 8 liters for every 100 kilometers. So I swapped it and was happy with it. That's already a good consumption, yeah. But it's also thanks to you that the car is working today. That's the reason you did it. Saved it, you could say, sure, but there were no problems with the car itself. Mr. Hrabanek couldn't have known it at the time, but since the engine had been in the depository at the vocational school in Mladá Boleslav for many decades, you were able to rebuild the OHC. Our dad bought the car in 66 and I rode in it between the ages of two and four. So I do have some sketchy memories of it. But I know that when our family began to grow and the car had to go, I remember that when a strange man got in the car and drove away, I did cry. I began studying a distance course at university while I was employed, so I didn't have a lot of time. And that's one reason I then sold it to one of my colleagues, and unfortunately he crashed it. car went up in flames, and he managed to get out of the rear window. So he was fine, but the car was a write-off, which was a shame. The guy was luckier than the car as he managed to escape the burning vehicle. The bodywork didn't survive the flames. The only thing left in the fire was a burnout chassis, the frame, axle, series engine and transmission. Thank goodness a collector from Jaromerz took it on and he had the vehicle in his collection for a long time. In the end, we managed to buy what was left of the car from his estate in 2014. The museum was initially considering only restoring the remaining fragments of the vehicle as an exhibition piece. In the end, Mr. Velbini and his colleagues decided that the coupe still had life in it, and they launched a highly ambitious and unique project to rebuild the entire car. For the reconstruction, the Škoda Museum Restoration Workshop joined forces with the Škoda Auto Prototype Construction Center, just as the original coupé had been made at the end of the 1950s. And because the original 2D vehicle drawings had been preserved, a grid of 3D curves covered with surfaces could be made at a one-to-one -one scale. This digital OHC model then had to be compared to surviving photographs. Here in Mladoboleslav, we've meticulously maintained archives, and so we've got drawings from the time of Mr. Lorin and Clement, of their first motorcycles and cars. So we have almost complete drawings for this coupe. The only aspect where we came up short was the rear lights, which we had to reconstruct following this open model. So how did the decision come about that you'd rebuild the body of this vehicle again? Because it isn't a traditional reconstruction that you regularly do. Here behind us is a vehicle that is reconstructed, but uh, most of the parts have survived. And it's just some smaller components that need to be dealt with. The body is usually at least somewhat uh, preserved. Whenever we restore vehicles like that, there's always something small, some part that's missing. So our first step is to go into the archives or find the spare parts. 
For this special, though, you won't find anything in the spares, because only two were produced, and the parts are so different from the mass-produced models that you can't find them anywhere else. So our first step took us to the archives. The drawings for the body were fairly complete, so we contacted our colleagues from Prototype Construction, and they took these traditional ink drawings on tracing paper, developed them, scanned them, and turned these ink lines into virtual curves. The process of developing and reconstructing this new body began with piecing them together in three dimensions. How much persuasion did they need? Uh, because this isn't uh, exactly a standard project they might encounter. It's anything but a standard project. But they didn't take much convincing, in fact. They were very enthusiastic. If it could be done 60 years ago, then we can do it again. The company management gave us their support, and the project got the green light. To begin with, we are here in front of a screen where we can see, let's say, the skeleton of the body comprising individual curves. Let's explain what uh, we are actually looking at. This is uh, the initial phase where you've transferred those paper plans into a digital format. That's exactly right. We're looking at cross-sections of every 100 millimeters that we've transferred into computer format. These are the individual cross-sections plus some characteristic lines, cutouts or joints. And this was the only basis we had, or, or rather, the only technical basis. The second basis was some photographs, and we had to use these. This is all we had to go off of to model the car again in a surface model. I'm actually asking as a layperson, how difficult is it to transform those uh, 2D drawings into this form? I understand you have to scan them, but it must be possible to do some of it uh, automatically? Actually, no. All of it is manual work, so to speak. So I don't know if I can follow up, but just as you don't forget how to ride a bike, so I haven't forgotten the work I did around 25 years ago. So I remembered how I used to work, and so I made use of my knowledge. It's done according to these individual cross-sections of individual surfaces. You need to check that it all fits where it should. So it's quite difficult work. You need imagination. Of course, uh, Mr. Velebny helped a lot with this, because various areas aren't even described. So yes, lots of gaps with the headlights, for example, and the rear corner bumper. So there was a lot of creativity involved there. Plus, of course, we had to stay true to the various photographs. How different is this from standard jobs uh, where you create new models? Well, today, the shape or design of a car is produced in the design department, who give it a complete description, and the subsequent departments get the shape completely described, which in this phase was no different. 
the design was clear, and it was described in the way that was then common. So individual cross-sections plus photographs. We skipped this phase or left it out, but we had to fill in the gaps. Following this basic skeleton, these surfaces we get to the drawings for those uh, specific parts. We see here the body with the individual pieces designated by color, so that means the final documentation is ready for manufacture. Right, exactly. This is the very final set of parts. The parts were constructed based on those surfaces we had a moment ago. Of course, when we were constructing it, we went by the drawings. We always tried to look everything up and to use the drawings. We had almost everything, but we did need to learn to read it all because it's highly concentrated. Velebny taught us a little, and when we weren't sure, we consulted the museum again regarding how it might be. And here are the fully constructed parts. That means they have all the bends, all the edges, all the internal construction is there. Everything's included. 